Well, good morning for those of you who may be visiting with us. If I didn't get a chance to meet you, my name is Jonathan Threlfall, and I serve as lead pastor for preaching here at Trinity Baptist Church. So glad that you're here worshiping with us. I hope that you will make your way to that table to the left of those two center doors as you go out so that we can have a chance to make a personal connection with you. Well, we are in a preaching series through the book of Genesis. Actually, just the first 11 chapters is our aim, and that series takes us now to chapter 6 in Genesis, so I ask that you turn in your Bible there, and if you're using a copy of the Bible that's found in the pew, you'll find Genesis chapter 6 on page 5. And ironically, considering the amount of rain that's coming down right now, we are preaching on the flood. We're looking at the story of the flood this morning. And uh, I hope you always remember this, young people, children, that you heard a sermon on the flood on the day that your parents' phone got a flash flood warning uh, that there was going to be some flooding. Uh, So the Lord sent us a flood. Maybe by the time we get out of this building, the Lord will even send us a rainbow to remind us of His promise. But we are going to be taking an overall look at the flood by looking at chapters 6, 7, 8, and a little bit into 9. And you're like, Pastor Jonathan, how in the world are you going to cover uh, such a massive flood in such an enormous, in such a short amount of time. Well, I'm going to do my best. And um, when we turn to this passage, though, and we hear about the flood, uh, a lot of people tend to think maybe one of two things. Uh, one of the things that tends to come to our mind about the flood is that it is a cute story for kids, because you have these cute little animals going two by two into this little wooden boat, and there's this elderly couple smiling on that boat and waving as the animals come two by two, and it makes a great decorating theme for nurseries and preschool ministries in the basement of churches. That's one thing that comes to people's minds when they think about the flood. And another thing that may come to people's minds when they think about the flood is debates about the age of the earth and whether it was a local flood and a worldwide flood and the impact on uh, geology. Uh, For our purposes this morning, although those discussions and arguments may have their place, we primarily want to understand what God wants us to learn about this flood story. We want to look at the New Testament. We'll be looking at the New Testament in a little bit to see how the writers of the New Testament look back and viewed the story of the flood. And what I aim to do in the time that we have remaining is to show you how the story of the flood points backward, upward, Christward and forward, all right? Just that's the way that we're going to deal with the the entire flood story in the time that we have remaining. We're going to see that the flood story, it points backward, it points upward, it points Christward, and it points forward. So first of all, let's see how the flood story points backward. Chapter 6 and verse 5 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, And then every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It's almost as if God is saying, what if we just started all over again with one man and his family? You see how the flood story is pointing backward? I wonder if you've ever had such a bad day (laughs) that you were like, maybe I could just go back to bed put the covers over my head, and start all over again. How many of you have been there before? You're like, this day is, is, is such a bad day. Or how many of you have been working on a project? You don't need to raise your hand. And, and it's just going so poorly that you're like, maybe I should just start all over again. Why? Because the effort that I'm going to put into it, it it's, it's, it's going to be more than this is worth. 
several years ago when my wife and I lived in North Carolina, our car was stolen out of the parking lot at where, uh, the apartment that we were, we were living in. And it was recovered by the police about 10 days later. But when it was recovered, the bandits, robbers, thieves had done so much damage to the car uh, that when the insurance company looked at it, they almost totaled it. I didn't, I didn't know until that point that an insurance company could total a car, and I learned what it meant for a car to be totaled at that point. It means that the repairs cost more than the value of the car. So they had taken the door off, they had taken the hood off, they had taken a, a seat out, they had done some other things, and you start adding that all up, and pretty, pretty soon the cost of all those repairs are like, you know what, it'd be better for you just to, st- just to get a different vehicle of, of equal value instead of trying to repair this thing. And at this point, when God looks at the world, human beings, this good, beautiful world that He has created, human beings have so perverted it and so distorted it. They've taken the beauty that God has made, and they've twisted it, and they've wrecked it, and God looks at the world, and it pains Him to His heart. And He says, what if we just go backward? What if we start all over again? What if we wipe the slate clean? What if we hit backspace, start typing again, and start all over again with one man, Noah, and his family? That's the question that this raises. The story of the flood points backward by raising the question, what if we start all over again with one man? Now, we see, we see many suggestions of this throughout the flood story, that this is a kind of a point backwards to a recreation. For example, you have in the very beginning this watery chaos. Remember in Genesis 1 verse 2, it says that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Well, later on in chapter 8, we read, chapter 7 rather, that the ark floated over the face of the waters. So there's this return to a watery chaos that marked the world at the very beginning. You remember that the Spirit of God, like a bird that was fluttering or hovering over this watery chaos, so Noah sends a dove out from the ark on a reconnaissance mission, and it hovers over the face of the water. There's all these reminiscences of this creation. When uh, Noah gets off of the ark, the water had separated from the dry land. That's almost verbatim what was going on in Genesis chapter 1 when God divides the water from the dry land. Uh, we also read, reiterated that God says he, that He created man in His image, just like He said it in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And then when Noah gets off the ark in Genesis chapter 9, he builds a garden, just like Adam was put into a garden. So all these little clues are pointing backward, and it's raising this question, what if we just start all over again? Now, why would God want to start all over again? Well, that's what Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is all about. Because things had gotten so bad. How bad? Well, these four verses, and if, if as Daniel was reading it, you're like, what in the world does this mean? The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were attractive, and they married whichever ones they chose, and then there was these, these Nephilim. What is going on with that? Wh- what this is saying here is it's giving, it's giving us a picture as to how bad things got. This, the sons of God here is a common designation for spirit beings. Whether the spirit beings are good or evil, you need to tell from the context. You have to discover from the context. So, in in Job chapter 1, we read that the sons of God came and appeared before God, but among the sons of God was the ultimate wicked spirit being, and that is Satan himself. In this context, are the sons of God good or bad? Well, they're bad. It seems that Jude, uh, the second to last letter of the New Testament, Uh, It seems that Jude understood these referring to angels who had left their proper boundaries. You remember the alliance that Adam and Eve had forged with with the serpent in the Garden of Eden by believing his his lie? 
Remember the serpent said, has God really said, and began to tear away their allegiance from God by believing that lie? Well, now the alliance between humans and the seed of the serpent has become even more intense. Now that alliance has become even more sinister by this intermarrying that the Bible doesn't give us details about, but here's what, it's in, here's what we are intended to realize, that things have gotten so bad that God says, let's recreate. Let's start all over again. Now, the question is, will this work? Will it work to rewind, to go back, to cleanse the earth from any human being except for Noah and his family? Well, Genesis chapter 9 tells us whether this worked or not, because when Noah gets off the ark and plants a vineyard, the Bible tells us that he gets drunk on the wine from the vineyard and shames himself. In other words, in answer to the question, can you fix the problem just by starting all over again with one person, the answer is, not if that one person carries in him the infection of sin, you can't. What is God trying to teach us? God is trying to teach us from this story. One of the things that God is trying to teach us is this. It's going to take more than a flood to wash away human sin. That's how deep the infection is. That's how broken we are. That's how lost we are. It's going to take more than a deluge. It's going to take more than, than waves crashing over mountains and, and, and destroying people. It's going to take more than that. Why? Because of the deepness of our sin, the depth of our, of our brokenness. You know, we often forget this story. We tend to think that we can solve our problem by going back. If only I could just start all over again. New Year's resolution, that's, what every, that's what's on everyone's mind. Why would everybody make a New Year's resolution? Because I've kind of failed and messed up and things have gotten out of control and I'm going to, January 1, I'm going to start all over again and it's going to be okay. I could fix my problem by going back or I can drown my problem by entertaining myself or I can wash away my, my guilt uh, by, by my zeal and by my determination. And, and what this story is here to say is, no, you can't. If a flood that wiped out humanity except for one man and his family couldn't, couldn't get rid of the problem of sin, do you think that the little squirt gun of your zeal can do that? Do you think that a little washcloth of your determination can, can clean the stain that marks so deeply the human heart? We, we feel guilt nationally. As, as Americans, there's this kind of corporate group guilt that we feel for things that we've done in the past. Can tearing down statues really reverse that? Can it really solve that problem? Yes, there's guilt. Yes, there's shame. Yes, there's wrongdoing in our past. But what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What could make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Hymn writer Augustus Toplady, he, he, in his song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, he said, he said, not the labor of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. 
Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears unending flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. The story of the flood is here to tell us. There is no amount of effort that you and I could do that could wash away the guilt of our sin. It's only the blood of Christ that can do that. So the story of the flood, it points backward. But second, the story of the flood points upward. It points upward. How does it point upward? Well, the entire story... This entire account is written in the key signature of God's initiative. Did you notice that God was the one that was grieved by human beings? God was one that decided to send the flood. God was the one that called Noah. God was the one that made a promise to Noah. And in chapter 8 and verse 1, God was the one that remembered to keep that promise to Noah. I mean, from beginning to end, it's God taking the initiative. Now, have you ever wondered why it is that there are so many details in this flood story? It's like we, we, just had a ch- we just finished studying a chapter, chapter 5, in which we have thousands and thousands of years of human history, and there's like almost nothing said about what was going on in the people's lives. And then the, the pace of the narrative s- suddenly comes to a grinding sl- uh, slow, almost a grinding halt, and there's detail after detail after detail of this flood story. And you're reading along, you're like, why all these details? Well, one reason for all the details is this. This wasn't the only version of the flood story that was in circulation at that time. Because you can look this up. Nearly every culture has their myths about some great flood that happened a really, really, really long time ago. It's all over the world. And, and you can read these myths, and some of them have a lot of really close parallels with this account that we read in the Bible. And the one that has the closest parallels is the one quite obviously found in the Babylonian culture, and it's, this, uh, it's found in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it tells a story about a group of gods, because these were polytheists, they believed in many gods, and they're getting so irritated by human beings. These human beings are loud, they're noisy, and they're like, they're fed up with it, so it's like, let's just send a big flood and wipe them all out, destroy them, and, and just kill all the humans. And so the, the gods are in this meeting deciding this, and one of the gods goes and rats on the other gods to one hero, and he's variously named, but this would be the equivalent of Noah, and says, hey, by the way, there's a big flood coming, so you better build a boat to escape it. And so this flood hero builds this boat. It's not shaped like a, it's shaped like kind of like a coffin in, in, the, in the Genesis account, but it's shaped like this big cube in, in this other story. And and he brings his family into it, and he brings all this gold and silver and wealth. I mean, he's going to stuff this thing with everything he has, and he rides out the storm. And he also, like Noah, he sends out birds on a reconnaissance missions to see if everything has, has, has dried up. But when the gods unleash this massive deluge upon the earth, they start freaking out because they didn't realize how out of control things were going to get. And when the flood finally abates, the, the chief god, the, the top god, Enlil, he's he is shocked to find out that anybody has survived. But because this one person survived, the gods give him eternal life as a reward. Now, th- that version of the story that is really, really old, it dates back to, they estimate from between 1,200 to 2,100 B.C., but it was probably in circulation long, long before, before that. That version of the story had so many conflicting details, which is why Genesis is, is saying, now let's set the record straight about what this flood was all about. This is not a group of petty, warring gods who are kind of out of control, at odds with, with one another, and, and unleash a disaster that they couldn't control. There is one God 
who does not respond in mere annoyance, but in righteous grief because of not the noise that people are making, but the sin and the, and, uh, the evil of human beings. And he's not unleashing something that's beyond his control. He is in perfect control of this storm. And the, the, the figure that rode out the storm did not do so because of his ingenuity. Rather, he did so because he had the favor of God. So it's a completely different story. Now, you and I probably don't believe that our lives are being controlled by a group of petty, incompetent, ignorant, and infighting gods. We probably don't believe that. But I think sometimes we kind of act like we do. Have you ever just been freaking out because of what's going on in your life? Kind of like you're riding in an airplane and there's hits turbulence, and, and, and as soon as the airplane hits turbulence, everyone's like leaning over, le- leaning toward the front to, and, and trying to catch a glimpse of maybe through the window of the pilot to see, has he, has he fallen asleep up there? Is, is everything okay there in the cockpit? And as soon as things go out of control, we suddenly believe that God has left control. But in, co- in contrast to the way we tend to view the world, and in contrast to the way these, the ancient pagan people viewed the world, the Bible presents God as a God who is in sovereign control of every detail of our lives. My friend, do you believe that? Do you believe that your God is in control? Do you, I, I, I want you to put this question to yourself very seriously because I, 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 I long for you to see God as He really is. If only you knew how in control God really is, you would sleep better at night. Psalm 3 says, I can, I can rest my head because I know, and I can both lay me down and sleep because I know, oh Lord, you alone make me to dwell in safety. I, I find it significant that the psalmist says, I both lay me down and sleep because I don't know about you, but I have laid down sometimes trying to sleep, but sleep doesn't come. But as someone has put it, the sovereignty of God is the sweetest pillow for any believer's head. You can rest your head on the sovereignty of God knowing that He is in complete control of your circumstances. Do you believe that in the depths of your heart? Oh, I wish that I could take back the curtain for you and let you see your God is in control. There is not a wave in the flood that that was cast upon the ark. There is not a gust of wind that blew it hither and yon, but that was from the hand of the Almighty God. There is not a single event out of, con- out of control. It's all under God's sovereign control. But, but second, here's another thing this teaches us about God, His loving loyalty. Not only does this story point upward and teach us of a God who is in sovereign control, but it also points upward to teach us of a God who has loving loyalty. You see in chapter 6 and verse 18, God says to Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And God says, you are going to be safe because I've made a promise. You see, our God is the promise-making and promise-keeping God. And by the way, it wasn't that God said, hey, Noah, if you build an ark, and if you're a really good guy, and if you withstand the temptation of the culture around you, then I'm going to save you. No, 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 no. God says, I'm going to save you. You have my promise. And it was upon the basis of that promise that Noah believed and obeyed. 
In other words, not by works, but by grace you are saved, through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, Noah's salvation through the flood was not because Noah proved himself to be the most righteous guy of everybody. Rather, it was because God said, I promise, I promise you will be safe. And upon the basis of that promise, Noah obeyed. We see a, loyally, a loyal and loving God. My friends, do you believe that your God is loyal in keeping his promise? He will never leave or forsake you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. You see, every promise that God has made, you can claim them all. Rake through the Old Testament and find every promise about God being with you, God supporting you, being a strong tower to you, being a refuge to you, being water to you, being light to you, being a shield to you. Every single one of those promises find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ because if you're in Christ, nothing can successfully oppose you. Nothing can be against you if you're in Jesus Christ because all God's promises find their yes and amen in Him. Do you believe that about your God? What's this about in chapter 8, verse 1? What's this about God remembering Noah? God, chapter 8, verse 1 says, God remembered Noah. You're like, what, did God forget about Noah or something? God's just up there in heaven and says like, oh yeah, there's that guy. What's his name? Nick? Nate, no, Noah, and I put him in a boat, and there he's bobbing up and down like a cork. I better help that guy. No, what does it mean when God remembers? God's remembering is when God decides to fulfill a promise he has made. It'd be kind of like those of you who are kids, you look forward to your birthday or Christmas, right? And you know your parents kind of make promises about what they're going to get for you. And, and you say, Mom, Dad, can I have a new bike for my birthday? My, my, my current bike, the wheel is bent, it's rusty, it doesn't have any brakes. Dad, Mom, can I have a bike for my birthday? And so, yeah, well, you get a bike for your birthday. You wait and you wait and you wait. You wait for what seems like forever, and three days later, it's your birthday. And on your birthday, you've opened some other presents, you've read the sappy notes from Grandma and Grandpa, you've You've, you've given the checks back to mom and dad, hoping that they're actually going to cash them and you're going get to the, get the money or whatever goes on. And then you're waiting for it. And your mom, your mom and dad, they go and they wheel out that bike with a ribbon on it. And you don't say, you forgot. You forgot for all those days before my birthday. No, they remembered and that was the day they planned to give it to you. And you see, when God makes a promise, he fulfills it in just the right time. That's what it means for God to remember His promises. When the children of Israel had been in Egypt for 400 years, the Bible tells us that finally God remembered, not because He had forgotten, but because that was the moment He decided to keep the promise. God is a loyal, loving, promise-keeping God. Do you believe that? This story points upward, points upwards. Third, the story of the flood points Christward. It points Christward. How does this point Christward? Well, the Apostle Peter uses the story of the flood, sees the story of the flood as a picture of what Jesus did for us when he writes about it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. You see, the story of the flood is a story with themes that get repeated over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, and that is this. That if God is going to save the world, if he's going to save anybody, he's going to save it through judgment. In other words, 
things are so bad and God is so righteous that the only way to make it right is to like unbend what has been bent or to use a, a really uh, a sobering but I think a very uh, even more poignant uh, analogy is the the problem with human beings is like a moral cancer that has spread throughout our body and those of you who have had cancer or have had loved ones with cancer know that it can get to a certain point when they have, they have, you have to undergo a radiation or chemical therapy that to kill the cancer, it almost kills you too. And, and that's almost as if, that's almost what it had to happen, what we realized after, after the flood. Apparently, the solution of wiping out everybody except for Noah and his family, apparently that wasn't radical enough. Apparently that judgment didn't go enough because it would seem in order to solve this problem, Noah has to go too. And the problem with this whole theme of salvation coming through judgment is if God is a righteous God and the world is a messed up place, then to make it right, it has to be judged. But if it's judged, will there be any world left to save? That's the tension. That's the question. There has to be judgment, but someone has to come through that judgment. Someone has to survive the judgment. Remember the question was posed at the very beginning. Can we just start all over again with one man? The answer is not if that one man is infected by sin. Oh, but what if there is one man uninfected by sin? What if there is a sinless person? And what if that sinless person is the Son of God? And what if he receives all the chaos and the deluge of the consequences of sin upon himself? That's what it means when the Bible says Jesus died for our sins and he rose again. You see, when Peter writes about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christ died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and he looks back at the flood, he says, just like Noah came through the flood. The deluge of God's judgment flooding the world. The deluge of God's judgment flooding the sinless Son of God, not for any sin He had done because He is perfect, but for the sins that you and I had done. Christ died for us. You see, the flood points Christward. It points to Christ in His death. It points to Christ in His resurrection. And as Peter writes about it in 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 22, it points to Christ in His ascension because Christ did better than Noah did. Noah gets off the ark builds a garden, gets drunk, and shames of himself. Jesus came out of the tomb, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our risen Lord. He is our champion. He is our conqueror. He is the one who bears the judgment of sin upon himself. That's how the flood points Christward. I love the words in 2 Peter chapter 3. And I'm going to read these. I'm going to turn here and read these actually, where it says in verse, uh, I'll begin reading in verse 20. It speaks of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. An ark brought safely through water. Water being a symbol for the, the chaotic, turbulent, destructive forces of judgment. Saved through water. And then he says this baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an, as an appeal to God for a good conscience 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You know, the fact that Jesus Christ has taken upon himself the judgment for your sin, that fact, means that if you trust in Jesus, you will never bear God's judgment. And that's really good news. The fact that Jesus Christ, in his death on the cross and his resurrection, bore the righteous judgment of God for you, if you trust in Jesus Christ, means you will never, never bear God's judgment. And because of that, that means that you can have a clean conscience. You, it means not only that you'll never bear God's judgment, it means you don't have to labor under a guilty conscience because you have been forgiven. The Bible tells me in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, that one of the aims of my ministry as a pastor ought to be in the giving of the word to you it says, it says that one of the effects of preaching the gospel to you is that you would have love that springs from a sincere faith and a good conscience. I want you to have a good conscience, a conscience that's unburdened by guilt. And what I'm proclaiming to you is that you can have a clean conscience because Jesus Christ has borne the judgment for your sin. And if you'll be honest with yourself, as I've tried to be as honest with myself as I possibly could be in leading up to this message, very often you and I labor under the weight of a bad conscience. We wake up in the morning feeling inadequate because we haven't been the right person that we ought to be the day before. You think about the fact that I'm a dad or you're a dad and you haven't been the dad to your kids that you should be or a mom to the, the, to the kids, to, to your kids that you should be or the right kind of grandparent or the right kind of worker and, and you, you kind of live with this low-level guilt just kind of humming in the background. And, and for some of you, feeling guilty is about the only reason you ever do anything right because, it's, because if you felt guilty. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 9 that says that the blood of Christ can free us, it can cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What are dead works? They're the kinds of things you only do because you feel guilty enough that you have to do them. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf, you don't have to live that way. You can live not because you're laboring under this low-level or high-level guilt, but out of the realization that you are forgiven and therefore free to pursue righteousness, not because you feel guilty or you feel some sense of, I'm trying to get something I don't have or keep something I've been given, but because I've been given something I could never lose, and that is the freedom of forgiveness. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves to us. My friend, laboring under a guilty conscience? Yeah. What, what, what the gospel says is this. You, you might 
You might say, well, I can overcome my guilty conscience by just trying hard next time, harder next time. The gospel says this, you need to go to Jesus Christ, confess and forsake your sin, and realize that in him is offered the freedom of forgiveness. And from the freedom of forgiveness, you can go and do the right thing and serve in a right way. Why? Because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ can cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I was thinking about this too. If, don't you think that God wants you to know that you're forgiven? If someone were to owe you $1,000, let's say someone owes you $1,000, and you start thinking about it, you're like, that guy could never pay me back. I'm going to forgive that debt. I'll just, I'll just pay for it myself. But I'm not going to tell him. I'll just let him think he's still in debt. You would never do that. You'd go to him and say, hey, by the way, that $1,000 you owe me, it's forgiven. Do you, do you th if you were to think that way, do you think God would forgive you and not want you to know it? Do you think God would say, I've forgiven him, but I sure do want him to labor under a load of guilt? No, God forgives you and he wants you to know you're forgiven. Why? So that you could serve him with joy and not under a burden of guilt. The story of the flood points to Christ, points Christward. And fourth, fourth and finally, the story of the flood points forward. It points forward. And it points forward in a couple ways. Jesus refers to Noah and the flood in two places in the Gospels, and they're both parallel accounts. So there's in, they're in uh, Matthew 24 and Luke 17. He's talking about the end times. And he says this. This is Matthew 24, 37. For as were the days of Noah... Think about the days of Noah. People just have, doing whatever they wanted to do, doing normal stuff, but Jesus says marrying and giving in marriage and eating and drinking. As in the days of Noah, so shall be the days of the coming of the Son of Man. You see, Noah kept telling them that something was going to happen they had never seen before. And that is, they were going to have a rainstorm like they had never experienced before. And we're going to look at this in just a little bit. And Noah, Noah not only said it with his words, but he said it with his actions. He said, I believe this so strongly that I'm going to be building a boat for the next 120 years. And they didn't believe it. Because they did not see into the future like Noah saw. Because they didn't accept the words of God like Noah accept the words of, accepted the words of God. See, what Jesus is saying, he's saying there's a parallel between our lives right now and the lives of the people way back in Noah's day. And the similarity is this. People were just going around their ordinary business thinking everything was going to happen just like it's always happened. And when the rain started falling and didn't stop, they realized things aren't going to be normal anymore. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, it's going to be like that when I return. If Jesus came a first time, he's going to come a second time too. And he said, people aren't going to be ready for it. 
because they didn't believe it was going to happen. See, the, the story of the flood, it points forward. See, people naively assume that this world is going to continue just as it always has. You have no rational proof for that. Just because the sun rises again and again and again, you can't, you can't calculate mathematically that it's going to do it again tomorrow morning. You can just say it probably will because it's been doing that for a long, long time, for as long as anybody can remember, but you can't prove that. And Peter uses the same logic in his epistle. He says people just thought everything's going to be like normal, and it wasn't, and people think the same thing today. It's, it's not reasonable, it's not logical, it's not rational to think that way, but people think that way. And the story of the flood points us, it points us to the future. It says there is a future reality, and here's what the reality looks like. It looks like Jesus coming again to once again cleanse this earth of wickedness and evil, this time permanently, and setting up his final kingdom, where, he, where Peter writes about in the third chapter of his second epistle, where righteousness dwells. The present order of things is not what things are going to always look like. The people that are big and important and in charge, the ones that everyone follows on Instagram and Facebook and threads or whatever new social media app is coming about, they're not going to be the ones that are important in charge anymore. Why? Because Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Things are going to be turned upside down. The question is, are you ready for it? My friend, are you ready for it? Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. What does it mean that he was a preacher of righteousness? It means that he was telling people about a world that was to come in which righteousness would dwell. That's the kind of world this world we're gonna, is going to be transformed into. Are you ready for that? You see, the story of Noah's flood points us forward to a future reality in which this world be transformed into a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And the question is, are you going to be part of that new world? And you're only going to be part of that new world if you've been secure in the ark of Christ, who alone can bring you through the raging storm of judgment. So the story of the flood points forward to a future reality, but secondly, it points forward to a life of faith. And we read about this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, where the writer of Hebrews says this, "...by faith Noah, being warned of God of things yet unseen." of things yet unseen. In other words, Noah is living his life with a reality that what things are like now are not what they're going to be like in the future, and he believed that so much that he was building, willing to build an ark. And he lived his life dancing to a different tune, marching to a different drum than the, the drum that everybody else was marching and dancing to. I mean, the, the rhythm that, was, that, that Noah was moving to was a rhythm from the future and it was a rhythm of raindrops pattering on everybody's houses. It, it was a rhythm of a future judgment and of God, a God who made a promise and would keep His promise. That's what it means to live by faith. To live by faith means to live in light of who God is and what He's promised. My friends, everybody lives according to what feels most real to them. What feels most real to you is what is going to guide your footsteps. Have you ever seen somebody with a virtual reality headset on? How many of you seen that? Raise your hand. I'm just curious. I, it is the weirdest thing ever because they're living in a different reality. It's like they've got this, this white thing wrapped around their head and they're going, like, what is that guy doing? Oh, 
you, let me explain here. Imagine somebody from like 100 years ago watching, watching this. They're like, what is going on? We haven't progressed. We've regressed. What, what is most real to that guy right now who thinks that he's holding a sword? What's most real to him is this epic fight that he's in because he has this kind of wraparound device and he's, what, that's, he's acting accord to, according to what's most real to him. Every one of us kind of has a virtual reality headset around. And for you, it may be looking a certain way. That's so important to you. It may be dressing a certain way. It may, might mean the importance and that what is most real to you is, is earning a certain amount or having certain kinds of friends or your children behaving in a certain way or whatever it is. But there's a virtual reality headset that's wrapped around your head that's telling you what's most real to you. For the Christian, what ought to be most real to us is God and his promises and the coming world of righteousness. That ought to be most real to you and me. And the world doesn't have those values. The world says, oh, what should be most real to you is just making as much money as you possibly can. So take what's not yours. What's most real to you? What, what should be most real to you? Children, young people, teenagers, listen, the world is piping into you a vision of reality. They're, they're, they're piping that vision of reality to you, and parents, you should be absolutely aware of this, that, you're, that if your ch- child has a, has, a, has a mobile phone, a smartphone, and if that child on that smartphone has social media apps or anything that accesses the internet, they have access to what the world is saying is most real and valuable, and it's not what the Bible says is most real and valuable. And, and pretty soon, they're going to be dancing to that tune. Why? Because they have been given such a compelling vision of what life could be. And my, my friends, my, my fellow parents, your calling is to give them an even more compelling vision of what life really is about. And that is a life lived for the glory of God. Because in the end, all that, that's all that will really matter. We so easily forget this. Noah... He was warned by God of things yet unseen. The world may say, take what's not yours. It's the only way to get ahead. Dress this way. It's the only way to get attention. Look at this. It's the only way to get satisfaction. Drink this. It's the only way to deal with problems. The believer marches to a different drum because the believer accepts the promises and warnings of God. Noah is an inspiring figure, no doubt, but there are many who have lived lives of faith. I was reading last night of William Borden. Some of you may know that name. There's a rather well-known biography, short biography of him published, Borden of Yale. He lived from 1887 to 1913. He was heir to a massive amount of money because his father had, inher- had uh, made, made millions uh, from some silver mining in Colorado. And at the age of seven, there's a lot of, there's some seven-year-olds in here this, this morning. At the age of seven, he was in a, he was in a preaching service And the preacher asked, if anyone wants to trust Jesus as their Savior, stand up. And little William, at the age of seven, stood up in that service and said, I want to follow Jesus. He never forgot that promise. 
He graduated from high school at the age of 16. His parents sent him on a trip around the world. He was too young to go to college. He sent, he sent him on a trip around the world, all expense paid, private tutor with him the entire time, saw all kinds of amazing sights. After that year, he enrolled, in col- he, he enrolled at Yale University, where he became an amazing leader on campus. He was an athlete. Uh, he was incredibly popular, but a strong Christian. In fact, he, out of his own personal wealth, even before he would turn 20, he helped fund a, um, a, a, sh- uh, like a homeless shelter uh, for uh, like a crisis shelter uh, in Connecticut for homeless people. There was a visitor from England who wrote and he said, the most amazing thing I saw in all my journey in America was that young millionaire putting his arm around a bum, a homeless man. He went from there to Princeton uh, Divinity School where one of his teachers said that, that he almost, because of that uh, William's maturity and, and confidence, he almost forgot that he was his teacher and, and William was his student. He said he so resonated with this young man, his love for the Lord, his, his intelligence, his leadership. He heard about the fact that there were millions of Muslims in China and resolved to be a missionary to Muslims in China. This is the early 1900s. And on his way to China, intending to go to language school and then go, get serve, serve as a missionary in China, in Egypt, he came down with spinal meningitis at the age of 25 and died. And when he died, uh, there was, there was, it was all over the newspapers that the young millionaire had died and people were thinking, what a waste of life. Not a waste of life. Nothing done for the glory of Christ is a waste of life. Why? Because he was living by faith. He was marching to the beat of a a future kingdom. There's nothing that's wasted for Christ. Young people, at the age of seven, you could stand up and say, I'm following Jesus. And at the age of 16, you could be inspired to be a missionary to Muslims in China or wherever. And even if you die at the age of 25, it will not have been a waste on his tomb. You could visit it in Cairo, Egypt. There is the inscription that was put this, inspired by his old Princeton theological prof- theology professor. This, it's inscribed into the stone, only, I'm sorry, apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from Christ, why would anybody want to do this? There is no explanation apart from Christ for such a life. Only Christ, preeminent, real, satisfying, beautiful, supreme. Only Christ can inspire such a life of faith. That's what Noah's life points us to. The story of the flood points us backward, points us upward, Christward, and forward. Would you bow your heads? We're going to observe the Lord's Supper in just a moment. There's a lot of kids here. Kids, your heads are bowed and your eyes closed, your children, but just can you listen to me just a moment? Maybe, children, do you know that Jesus loves you? He does. He loves you so much that he died on the cross to save you from your sins so that you could be with him forever. And my young friend, if you haven't believed that, you can right now. You can say, you can just cry out and say, Dear Jesus, save me from my sin. 
I believe that you died on the cross for me and rose again, and I want to be with you forever. You can do that this morning. You know, for those of us old people, the Bible tells us that we have to become like little children to enter the kingdom of heaven. That simple faith that says, Jesus, I need you. And it's that simple faith that we're going to celebrate in just a moment as we observe the Lord's Supper. Our Father, would you continue to be with us in our worship as we see the gospel displayed through the bread and the cup. I pray this in Jesus' name.